Welcome back, people. Jose Nino here, your irrepressible host of El Nino Speaks. Once again, I am joined by the great George Samueli, the co-host of The Goggle. What's new with you, George? Well, nothing um, startling, to be honest, but it's always very good to uh, speak to you, Jose. Likewise, man. All right, let's get into it. We've, we're now about, uh, actually now like a year and a half, more or less, into the Russo-Ukrainian conflict. Based on your analysis of this conflict, what do you make of it and what do you think is the likely outcome of it? Well, it's clear from the development, particularly from the rather dismal showing of the so-called Ukrainian counteroffensive, that Ukraine cannot win this war. you know, that, that, that's a given. That all, all the talk of Ukraine capturing uh, territory back from Russia, Ukraine cutting off the, um, the land bridge to Crimea, let alone the heated talk that Ukraine's going to uh, go for uh, Crimea itself. I mean, all that is just a, a lot of nonsense. Having said that, if one then looks at the, the other side, it's not immediately obvious to me that Russia is in any position to win this war on its terms anytime in the near future. I haven't seen any massive deployments of Russian armed forces, any uh, deployments of uh, Russian weaponry that would indicate that they are ready to mount the kind of offensive, the scale and size of an offensive necessary to bring this war to a conclusion. So, you know, it's now uh, mid-August. Uh, the rainy season will be starting quite soon, which means there's limited uh, scope for any major offensives. It's looking like, as we, as we go into the winter, as uh, a, a rather inconclusive um, stalemate. What happens afterwards, I think, is, is um, a, the salient issue. Ukraine, without question, has a, uh, a manpower issue. It's already uh, deployed an enormous number of men uh, on the field. It's sustained uh, enormous uh, casualties. But I haven't yet seen the kind of demoralization and uh, collapse of will that would lead one to think that, okay, that this is what's coming to an end. Ukraine just simply can't take uh, this level of casualties any longer. Ukraine will seek to sue for peace. I haven't seen it yet. I mean, you know, there are, of course, you know, when you you read so many of these uh, articles, they say, "Oh, yeah, it's going to come to an end soon. Ukraine's going to give in. Uh, NATO is going to press Ukraine to settle, and so on." I don't see it. I, ha- I haven't seen any evidence uh, to date that Ukraine is ready to sue for peace. NATO is a different question. I mean, NATO doesn't want peace under any circumstances, and NATO believes that it's got Russia on the ropes. For NATO, this is a war that they're waging on the cheap, on the cheap in the sense that uh, no NATO forces are getting killed. You know, no, no one from any NATO country is getting killed, or at least not I mean, officially. And Russians are getting killed. So a little like when Lindsey Graham said, you know, well, R- Russians are dying, best money we've ever invested. And I think that's NATO's approach. 
So NATO doesn't want this war to come to an end. NATO will continue to urge Ukraine to go on fighting. Whether Ukraine can do it, whether Ukraine does have the manpower to go on uh, fighting, that's an open question. So far, I haven't seen any collapse of will on Ukraine's part, but we'll, we'll have to see. You know, one, one never knows in war. Uh, things can happen very quickly and very suddenly. But at the moment, I don't see any indication that Ukraine's on the brink of collapse. Yeah, same here. I even think one of those uh, Chechen, like Akhmat special force commanders, like Opti Alaldinov, said something to the effect that he does not see this conflict ending anytime soon. So, do you believe that this could drag on for several more years? Well, it could well be. Um, I mean, we we'd all expected that this would end relatively quickly, and there was no basis for our for our assumption. We just assumed it. And therefore, thought, oh, well, it's going to come to an end in a few months, be over within six months, then within a year. Uh, now it's going to be, well, within two years. It may well just drag on for several years. Could well be you know, three, four, five-year war. It's a catastrophe, I think, for, um, for both Russia and Ukraine for this war to go on for such a long time. I mean, you have to say that, that's a, that it's hard to see how that's, that's any kind of an achievement, certainly not much of an achievement uh, on Russia's part. For NATO, um, unfortunately, you know, you know, if one looks at it cynically, they think this is a good deal. They think that this is great. I mean, it's not like when the United States got itself in Iraq and it was fighting in Iraq and it was sustaining casualties in Iraq. Same with Afghanistan. It was sustaining uh, casualties. And, you know, let, let alone we go back a, a couple of generations to Vietnam. Again, Americans were dying in Vietnam. Here, Americans are not dying. I don't see any incentive for the Americans uh, or for NATO, and NATO is just an offshoot of the Americans, to bring this to any kind of an end any time soon. I think they have the weapons. I think they have the armory. I think all the talk about how Ukraine will run out of shells. Ukraine will run out of weapons. NATO will run out of shells. NATO will run out of weapons. They won't have anything to send. I don't believe a word of it. I mean, you know, the, the countries that comprise NATO and NATO's various satellites around the world, they are big, big economies. They can produce an awful lot of uh, weaponry, shells. I think they can do it. I mean, if, they, if, if, you know, if there's a will, and I think there is a will, to go on um, sending uh, Ukraine weaponry, then they will do it. They will find shells. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't take enormous genius uh, to get factories to produce shells. Relatively inexpensive. I and mean, when you think of how, you know, the size of the American economy, when you think of the size of um, military budget, it's, it won't take that much to go on, uh, you know, escalate uh, the production of uh, shells and weaponry uh, for Ukraine. So unfortunately, I think um, uh, NATO wants to keep it going. Whether Ukraine can do it, that, that's, I think, a different question. And that, that, I think, is the one that remains the kind of the joker in the pack, whether Ukraine can sustain its morale and the very heavy casualties. I mean, one reads these reports of uh, you know, mothers mourning their sons and people losing their limbs and, and you know, being you know, essentially sent into this meat grinder. You have to wonder, I mean, how, how long can they go on fighting in this way? But, but at the moment, you know, they, they seem willing to do it. Do you believe that Ukraine will come out as like a coherent nation state 
after the dust settles from this conflict, or will it end up being partitioned, left as like a rump state? No, I, I think um, I think uh, Ukraine will lose um, substantial territories. I think that um, it will certainly lose the uh, Donetsk and Lugansk. I think. Um, I mean, when one thinks of how this war is shaping up, I mean, this war is uh, a war of attrition. Again, very bad. It, it's a tragedy all around for a war of attrition because it just means essentially enormous casualties on all sides. But, but nonetheless, that's what it is. It's a war of attrition. In such a war, Russia ultimately will prevail. I mean, Russia is just much bigger uh, than Ukraine. Russia has a much bigger industry than Ukraine. And whatever NATO can send to Ukraine, it still won't be as much as Russia can uh, produce. So as this war drags on in this way, this war of attrition, I think Russia can sustain losses of manpower to a much greater extent than Ukraine can. And therefore, the territories that are under Russian occupation will remain under Russian occupation and more. I think that Zaporozhye, Kherson will come back under Russian control, you know, maybe also Kharkov. So all of that territory, I think, will be uh, lost to Ukraine. I have my doubts, though, whether Russia will take anything more. I mean, there's been a lot of speculation that Russia will take Odessa, Russia will take Ukraine's Black Sea coast. I don't think Russia wants to do that. Oh, to pursue a Carthaginian peace, so to speak. I don't think Russia will do that. I think that um, they'll settle for these Lugansk, Donetsk, the two uh, new oblasts that they added, the Zaporozhye and Kherson, and then maybe a little bit more like um, Kharkov. But I don't think they're going to go further. I don't think they're going to take Ukraine's Black Sea coast. But nonetheless, what, what will remain of Ukraine will obviously will be a much diminished uh, state and I suspect that diminished state will um, will join NATO because I don't I don't think Russia will be able to prevent this rump state of Ukraine from joining NATO. In which case, you know, Russia's long term problems with NATO and the West will remain. Oh, that's interesting. What prompts you to believe that Russia will not go for the Black Sea? route and like capture Odessa? I don't think that um, Russia really wants to take away Ukraine's access to the Black Sea um, because that would that brings would bring into question Ukraine's survival as a viable economic entity. And, and I don't think Russia really wants to do that. I mean, I think Russia still feels a certain certain sense of familial loyalty uh, toward Ukraine after all. They are brother countries. And certainly, you, you know, if we look at Putin's famous essay on the issue of Russians and Ukrainians, he does see Russians and Ukrainians as one people. To take away the, the, the access to the Black Sea would be, I think, a bridge too far for Russia. I may be wrong, but I think that they don't have any interest in that. And they've given no indication that they, they intend to do that. They've given every indication that they intend to incorporate Kherson and Zaporozhye, Donetsk and Lugansk into, into Russia, that, that they've given any, every indication. They haven't given any, any indication that they also want um, 
Odessa and and the, and the, the uh, Ukraine's ports in the in the Black Sea, and I think Russia has never pursued Carthaginian peace. I mean, it's always been relatively restrained in its uh, you know wartime objectives. You know, even historically, when you, when we look back on the 2008 war in Georgia, they could have pursued a much harsher uh, process against uh, Georgia. After all, Saakashvili had started the war. Russia could have marched on to Tbilisi and thrown out Saakashvili. They didn't do it. They, they were quite limited just to secure those autonomous um, provinces of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And then if we go back even to Russia's great victory in World War II, again, Russia's relatively restrained in um, what it took. It didn't take Finland, even though Finland had uh, had been once part of the Russian Empire, even though Finland had joined Hitler in attacking uh, the Soviet Union. But the Soviet Union just basically let let Finland uh, go, and Finland, in fact, you know, was didn't, wasn't even incorporated into any military alliances uh, of the Soviet Union. You know, the Warsaw Pact or anything like that. The Dardanelles. You know, again, Turkey had, had had been not been a friendly power towards the Soviet Union. You know, Stalin could have uh, tried to push for either taking the Dardanelles away from Turkey, or he could have even insisted on the Dardanelles coming under international control. He didn't do it. So I don't think that the Russians are going to push, pursue a particularly harsh peace um, against Ukraine. Yeah, from the looks of it, it looks like the security situation in after like a potential peace settlement between Russia and Ukraine will look pretty flimsy, if you ask me, because there's nothing to indicate to me that the West will give up some type of proxy conflict or unconventional conflict to poke Russia in the eye. And I even heard something to the effect that John Mearsheimer mentioned before that there was some Russian national security advisor or a former national security official who said that he believes that Russia will have to update its nuclear doctrine to make it more offensive in nature to take into the account of like the NATO threat that's going to be even larger now. What do you see like the future of like Russia-Western relations looking like once the dust settles from this conflict? Well, I agree with you. I think that um, whatever the... Um that final outcome, and as I say, I think you know Russia will incorporate these uh, additional territories within the Russian Federation, but I don't think Russia will be able to stop the rest of Ukraine joining NATO. And NATO will, without question, continue to pursue that, uh, its, its proxy war against Russia. I mean, the, it will begin to arm Ukraine and in some way or other, plan to um, restart the whole thing in five, ten years' time. So the division uh, between Russia and NATO will be even more acute. And there's no, no real incentive for NATO not to continue its proxy war um, against Russia because it essentially brings all uh, NATO members into this uh, belligerent uh, uh, mode Yet it justifies the continued existence of NATO. It forces everybody to uh, to succumb to uh, NATO's will. 
And, you know, NATO has a new purpose, you know, waging uh, war against Russia. So NATO will continue this uh, proxy war against Russia. And so in, in those circumstances, I mean, the, the, the war will not have achieved I think, what Russia really wanted to achieve. I, know, I mean, it's not that Russia wanted additional territories from Ukraine, because if they had, they could have made that point a long time ago, and Russia never made the point that they, I mean, you know, from 1991 on, when Ukraine went independent, Russia has never made any kind of irredentist claims on Ukraine. The only issue Russia has raised in the past um, has been NATO membership. So if a rump Ukraine becomes a NATO member state, then that will have been a failure for Russia. Yes, Russia will have um, increased its uh, territory, but it's still got the problem, which is that it is surrounded by NATO states. NATO is still determined uh, to go on expanding, and you know, NATO does want to enclose uh, Russia. And I think that problem uh, Russia hasn't uh, solved. And the nuclear issue, I think, is very interesting because. Um, what I think Russia has been quite successful in doing um, since the start of this um, military operation is that it has warned NATO off. I mean, NATO has got itself in, involved in this war, obviously, but Putin's repeated invocations of nuclear weapons, making threats about nuclear weapons, moving nuclear weapons into um, Belarus, uh, talking about nuclear strategy, has, it's, he has been very successfully intimidated NATO into not taking things any further. And I think that's been quite successful because given all the hotheads in NATO, you know, all the Polands and the Baltic states, the kind of demented uh, British, things could have got much worse. Things could have got really dangerous, but for Putin's uh, bringing up of nuclear weapons. So I think that, I mean, you know, and again, Think the things will still get get very nasty, you know. When we're, we're by no means out of the woods, but I think that 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 has been a, a, a an important ingredient of Russian policy, which is to uh, bring up nuclear weapons and make clear that we are ready uh, to use uh, nuclear weapons because, you know, it's an existential matter, and they've made clear that they will use nuclear weapons in response to. A non-nuclear attack. So, in other words, they they made clear: yeah, we will resort to nuclear weapons even if uh, we have been subjected to a non-nuclear attack. Because if it's an existential matter, then according to our doctrine, we are entitled to uh, use uh, nuclear weapons. On the domestic front for Russia, in the aftermath of this conflict. What do you see Russian domestic politics looking like? Do you continue to see Putin being in the picture until his like death, or will he be succeeded by somebody else? And will this successor try to mend relations with the West, or will they drift more into this newly formed Eurasian triumvirate comprised of Iran and China? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think that, um, I mean, the elections are next year. If we're in the same similar situation, you know, a year from now, from where we are now, at the moment, Putin will be re-elected. I mean, because there's no there's no one really around who is any kind of a challenge to him. The question is whether there will be people within the um, the military and the security apparatus 
who who are displeased with the way this war is going. They would like, you know, they, they think Russia should have won this war a long time ago. They should have brought this to a, a, a speedy conclusion when they had the chance. Now, the question then is, would those people, are they in a powerful enough position to remove Putin and replace him with someone else? I, I have my doubts because I don't see any figure on the horizon who has emerged as any kind of a uh, an alternative. You know, we obviously had the so-called mutiny uh, with uh, Prigozhin, but Prigozhin has kind of been marginalized. He's certainly not been punished, which itself is kind of interesting that, you know, he, he, he seemed to be threatening the existence of the state. Nonetheless, he's walking around free. He hasn't been punished. On the other hand, it doesn't look like Prigozhin enjoys any... Um, widespread following among the sort of the military um, and security people. So from everything that one can gather, there is a certain amount of dissatisfaction uh, among the military over the lack of progress, the lack of the um, a resolution to this. So it, there's no question that uh, you know, Putin has not shown himself to be a, a wartime leader. He's kind of a technocrat. He's not, you know, he's not a wartime leader. I mean, even as we, you know, we see this, um, the unfolding of this um, counteroffensive, the failure of the counteroffensive, we don't see Russia now taking this opportunity and saying, "Hey, we've now we now have the chance to, you know, ram home our advantage." Ukraine threw everything forward. They they mounted their counteroffensive. It's failed. Now we move on to the offensive and try to bring this to a conclusion. That hasn't happened. And again, I, I think that there, uh, there, there is some dissatisfaction. On the other hand, you, you don't want to remove a leader who has been fairly successful. I mean, you know, all the polls that we've seen from reputable you know, uh, Russian pollsters, Putin is immensely popular. So despite the fact that you know, I think Russians are troubled the, about the war, they're troubled that it's not over, they're troubled by the fact that um, Russian cities, including Moscow, uh, have come under drone attack, that uh, Crimea has come under drone attack, that bridges come under drone attack, that there have been assassinations on Russian territory, all kinds of things that they had assumed wouldn't happen have happened under Putin, but that hasn't affected Putin's popularity. So whatever machinations that might be among the um, the leadership in Russia, I, I don't think they're going to move against Putin because they're going to be, then they would have to move against somebody who enjoys enormous uh, popularity within the country. Given how most of the geopolitical attention and resources are being dedicated by the collective West in arming Ukraine, do you think that China is one of the winners of the Russo-Ukrainian conflict, given how it has been relatively unscathed and there's um, there's basically a delay in the pivot to Asia by the U.S. to try to contain China. And factoring all of this, do you see China as gaining more time to plan ahead in a potential confrontation against the West? I don't think so. I mean, I think that um, China's position, I think, would have been much strengthened had uh, Russia prevailed 
much more quickly because then with a, with essentially a defeat for NATO and a kind of a humiliation for the United States, the, the, the Russia-China bloc would have seemed much more formidable. Russia provides the military power, it provides the diplomatic power, and China has the economic power. But China hasn't really done very much. It hasn't done very much for uh, Russia. Its various uh, diplomatic initiatives turned out to be duds. They really didn't amount to much. I think China has come across looking rather foolish by doing, making a whole song and dance about, um, you know, we have a peace plan and whatever. And in the end, they didn't really have anything. And um, what happens to China is really dependent on how this um, war turns out. If it turns out badly for Russia, I think that's very bad for China, because then NATO or the United States will have seen that um, this method that they use, this proxy war in Ukraine, essentially killing Russians without Americans losing any lives, that can be uh, used quite effectively against China. So just as uh, the United States and NATO had been building up Ukraine all these years to the point at which Russia was really having difficulties defeating Ukraine militarily, so they can apply that same method to Taiwan. You know, the so-called porcupine strategy, you know, just keep building up Taiwan, building them up, building them up, to the point at which uh, China will realize that to defeat Taiwan is going to be an enormous expenditure of um, military resources. And having seen that, you know, how hard it was for Russia to defeat Ukraine, I think China will, will realize that well, they too are in a, in a dire position. And, you know, then it's a question of, you know, will, will Russia do very much to help China, given how little uh, China has done to help Russia? So I don't see that this has strengthened uh, China's position. I think that China's position would have been much strengthened if Russia had had brought the war to a to a swift conclusion at a very early stage, because then that would have shown that the Russia-China bloc is a, is a real serious uh, entity, and you know, and, and is more than a match for uh, the U.S.-led bloc. Do you think that China will be involved in any type of negotiated settlement between Ukraine and Russia, or they'll just stay on the sidelines? I don't see it. I, I, I really don't see that China has um, anything uh, much to offer. I mean, had China provided Russia with um, more um, assistance, um, I think that might have been uh, different. But at, at the moment, whatever the settlement will be, I think it'll be decided by, um, by Russia. I mean, as things stand, how it's looking, that there won't be any kind of a uh, a peace treaty or any kind of a, uh, a peace settlement. There will be some sort of an armistice, you know, you know that basically put down your arms, stop fighting for, uh, you know, whatever indefinite time. And uh, there won't be any kind of a negotiated settlement like, well, this, this, you know, this is going to be the new border. Um, this will belong to the Russian Federation. This will be Ukraine. Uh, you know, there's some sort of a commitment on NATO membership or whatever. I don't think any of that is going to happen. I don't think NATO has any interest at all in negotiating uh, with Russia. Any negotiated outcome will then seem like a failure 
for NATO because NATO has essentially presented a very maximalist demand, which is all of uh, Ukrainian territory has to be returned to Ukraine, uh, including even uh, Crimea. Given such a maximalist demand on the part of NATO, it's hard to see that, you know, that any, so that if they were now to sign some sort of a, a treaty with Russia, then it will seem like a defeat and a humiliation for NATO. So why should NATO do it? So I think if the war does come to an end in Ukraine, I think it will be on the basis of an armistice, no peace treaty, no negotiated outcome. It just essentially will we'll stop fighting until we'll re- we restart fighting. Now for the other leg of the Eurasian triumvirate, Iran, I, I definitely view it as the weakest link of the bunch, given that it's not a nuclear power. And in the game of geopolitics, regardless of what people think about nuclear weapons, they are like the the primary guarantor of national sovereignty. And you can see it firsthand with like countries like North Korea, which have um, avoided full-blown invasions from other great powers in the last 70 or so years. Now, respect to Iran, I've been noticing like the U.S. continues to dial up tensions there. And they even, I think like a week or two ago, they sent like, some marine and naval units in the Strait of Hormuz for a so-called deterrence effort, but I have a hard time believing that. And due to the fact that like, the majority of U.S. foreign policy is very pro-Zionist of, certain, of like a certain type of stripe, I would not put it past these people to launch some type of punitive strike, especially if you have like a Republican president like ranging from like Ron DeSantis all the way to Nikki Haley, which are wholly owned subsidiaries of Zionist interests. Do you think that there will be some tensions breaking out between the U.S. and Iran in the next five years or so? Well, it could well be. The The Biden administration has um, has been all over the place when it comes to Iran. I mean, like you mentioned, you know, they, they came up with this proposal recently that they're going to put um, U.S. Marines on commercial ships because they think that they might be attacked by um, Iranian uh, forces. So then they do that, but then they also sign an agreement to uh, release uh, prisoners. So the Americans released Iranian prisoners, the Iranians released American prisoners, and then they got South Korea to release some Iranian assets. So, so on the one hand, they're threatening to start bringing, putting, uh, you know, uh, U.S. Marines into the Persian Gulf and thereby, uh, you know, risking, you know, all-out military conflict with Iran. On the other hand, they're, they're signing agreements with Iran uh, about releasing uh, prisoners. Um, and that, and this sort of ambiguity has been a characteristic of Biden. I mean, how many years did he spend uh, negotiating, completely futile negotiation, on um, getting back to the JCPO, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Of course, it never led anywhere. For an obvious reason, Biden has no stake in the JCPOA. Who, who does has, have a stake in the JCPOA is Obama and the various uh, o- o- Obama acolytes that are within the uh, Biden administration. And they were the ones who have been pushing for a return to the JCPOA. But Biden has no no particular commitment to the JCPOA. Obama does, but you know Obama's not president. 
so so Biden, you know, is is all over the place on Iran. Now the Republicans are, I think, a different case, and and it's quite possible that out of frustration, if, if the Republicans um, do uh, return to the White House in 2025, that something or other could could um, happen with Iran. And again, I think, as you say, why not? I mean, Iran has no nuclear weapons. Iran could certainly make trouble. But, I mean, what the war in Ukraine has shown the United States and NATO, that you can fight these proxy wars, make life difficult for others, give other countries headaches, without getting, you know, bloodied yourself. And there's no particular reason why they couldn't do find all sorts of ways to uh, make life very difficult for Iran. I mean, all, all kinds of insurgencies they could provoke, domestic uh, strife, and that, you know, some some sort of even military military strikes. Why not? I mean, a, a lot of things that previously were off the table now, are now on the table. I mean, who would have thought that uh, the Americans would take as many risks as they have in Ukraine? They have. So why not take uh, risks against Iran? And they were willing to take these risks against Russia, nuclear power. Why not take uh, risks against Iran? And if, you know, they block the Strait of Hormuz or whatever, okay, let them do it. Oil prices will go up, but, you know, that's not bad for the Americans, particularly if you have a Republican administration that's going to make um, oil production a priority so that, you know, Americans are going to make money on that. And... Again, if there's a mili- some sort of a military conflict in the, the Strait of Hormuz between Americans and Iranians, Americans will win. So, I, you know, I, I think that that's a very distinct possibility in a, in a Republican administration. Do you see Iran's relations with Russia strengthening in light of the Russo-Ukrainian conflict? Because that's one of the more interesting developments of the post-Cold War era. Because historically, if you go back all the way to Imperial Russia... Russia and Iran have had very fraught relations. They've fought several wars, and even the Soviet Union sent an invading force into Iran. But now they do seem to have very strong relations. And you can kind of notice that like, they are fighting a lot of the similar U.S.-funded transnational Sunni fundamentalist entities that destabilize a lot of the Middle East and Caucasus region. And they share the obvious enemy in the U.S. through like the sanctions campaigns that that are imposed on them. Do you see that relation still being tight? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, Russia and Iran uh, have drawn very close. Iran is also kind of you know in, interested in the conflict between Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan. You know, you know, Iran does not have particularly good relations with. Um, Azerbaijan, because of course you know there's there's a substantial Azeri population in Iran. So, and that of course also brings in Turkey. Iran also is, is not at all happy with um, Erdogan and uh, the activities of Turkey. And Russia also is not at all happy with um, Erdogan and Turkey. So that also brings uh, Russia and uh, Iran uh, closer together. And uh, and as you say, I mean, there's obviously. Uh, the, the United States, Iran has shown how you can defy the U.S.-led sanctions, which Russia is now doing. So I think that there's no no question that uh, that that will uh, those relations will become more important, particularly given that 
you know, Russia has to express some disappointment over the lack of support it has received from countries from whom it might have expected support, you know, some of the former republics of the USSR. So, you know, Kazakhstan, which should be an ally of Russia's, really hasn't provided any support uh, for Russia. In fact, uh, Kazakhstan's made a point of saying that they're actually not doing anything to challenge Western sanctions against Russia. So although, you know, you know that therefore, you know, they, they're not going to do anything at all that would uh, violate um, uh, Western sanctions against Russia. You know, and when you think that Kazakhstan, you know, Tokayev, the president of Kazakhstan, who was almost ousted in December 2021 by, I think, probably a, a, a Western-led coup, he only survived because the Russians intervened through the Collective Security Treaty Organization. He survived, and he's, uh, you know, he's expressed his gratitude to Russia by essentially providing no real support in this war. Iran, you know, is, is very, very different. Iran has clearly uh, supported Russia in, in Ukraine and has you know, provided assistance, you know, military assistance. And uh, so I think Iran has shown itself to be an ally of Russia's where some of the stands had been, you know, been part of one state with uh, Russia, uh, have really done very little. Uh, same with North Korea, incidentally. North Korea has also provided assistance for Russia. So, it, it, you know, it's a, you know, as we look at the, the, the shakeup of the, the geopolitical map, I think Russia is going to you know, have, we'll have to re-examine who its real um, allies are. And, um, yeah, I see. You know, Ru- Russia is, uh, sees who, who its um, allies are. Its allies, I think, Iran, North Korea, obviously. Uh, and, and again, you know, it, it, it's finding its, its allies in Africa. Now, these African countries, there's a limited amount that um, uh, they can do um, militarily or you know, economically. Nonetheless, you know, their, their kind of support, quite very warm, warmly expressed support, you know, diplomatic, you know, uh, support, uh, that's, that's significant. I mean, for the African states to come to uh, Russia for that um, Russia-African summit and express, you know, explicitly support for Russia in its war, that that took some doing. That's a significant uh, development. This wasn't just, oh, um, staying neutral. Um, this was uh, you know, this, this was a significant development. So, you know, as, 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 the, kind of, you know, as the world kind of shake, is shaken up as a result of this war, Russia's, you know, getting getting a, you know, a better sense of who its partners and allies are and who aren't, and you know, certain states, I think, it just will be, you know, uh, history. I think, you know, I think Kazakhstan, I mean, will be just, you know, would be, be very, very insignificant uh, for Russia. Israel as well, incidentally. I mean, again, you know, obviously, the Soviet Union and Israel had a very fraught relationship during the Cold War, particularly after 1967, when they didn't even have diplomatic relations. But nonetheless, after 1991, Russia and Israel had very warm relations. That has changed. That, that's, uh, that, that's gone. And you know, relations, I think, between Russia and Israel are gradually moving back to um, where they were during the Cold War. Um, again, you know, Russians will feel that they've done, you know, they've been very generous towards uh, Israel, they've overlooked 
all their uh, attacks, their bombing attacks on Syria by, by Russia adopting this neutral stance. Well, you know, we, we, we support Syria against ISIS, but uh, we're not going to get involved in this conflict between Israel and Iran. I don't think Russia is going to continue with that position. I think, you know, Russia will say, well, you know, Iran is an ally of ours. It supported us uh, in Ukraine. It supports us in Syria. What's Israel done for us lately? So I think that, that's another part of the shakeup uh, that's, that's coming. This leads to another point here with respect to Israel. It's being rocked by protests and even some forms of military insubordination due to the proposed judicial reforms that Benjamin Netanyahu's right-wing coalition government has rolled out. Do you think that this type of strife will become a fixture of Israeli politics, especially now that demographically speaking, the country is becoming much more religious and like ethno-nationalist and the, that segment of the population is going to begin asserting its will uh, politically? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Israel is sort of an in- interesting case. I mean, its national character has changed um, substantially um, from what it was, you know, back in the 60s, 70s onward when it had a, a very European character. And, and that was in the days of um, the rule of the Israeli Labour Party. And, um, you know, th- those people, the West, you know, was felt very comfortable um, dealing with them. But gradually, things changed. It started in the 70s with the um, coming to power of um, Likud and, and uh, Menachem Begin. So the, the people who um, the West really likes, they've kind of been eclipsed. So, so the conflict that's going on in Israel has obviously has nothing whatever to do with the rights of Palestinians. Things changed with, with the victory, I think, in 1977 when Menachem Begin uh, came to power. So what was happening is that the, uh, the kind of the, the European uh, population of Israel, their power and influence has gradually diminished. So, you know, it's, it's the, the, the population of uh, Israel that has changed. I mean, as, as far as the Palestinians are concerned, that, you know, that all, all sections of um, Israel are absolutely united on that. You know, the, say, on, on whether it's in the West Bank, Gaza, there's no real dispute on that. There is a dispute, though, about who's going to wield power in Israel. And what, and what we've seen in this, uh, you know, in all the protests, Against Netanyahu is is very much that the, the you know like the, the you know the judiciary the kind of you know the, the kind of the liberal media elite of Israel they they're not dissimilar from the kind of you know, you know liberal media legal uh, elite of other countries they detest Netanyahu not because they they think he's a hawk on on the Palestinians or anything like that that's not what the issue is they just detest Netanyahu and the people that Netanyahu represents. And I think that conflict is going to uh, continue. I mean, notice, I mean, you know, Netanyahu in some ways is the Israel's Trump, has certainly, uh, you know, a, a devoted following, but is detested by the elites of uh, Israel. And, and they've been trying to get him for a long time. I mean, they've tried to use criminal prosecution against him so far with, with, without any success. 
So that that hasn't worked. Now they're, they're trying, you know, mass protests supported by the United States. I mean, the United States was very actively involved in those mass protests against um, Netanyahu. I mean, they've been trying to overthrow him, you know, and that conflict, I think, will uh, continue. But it's just important to keep in mind that this conflict is, is a kind of a class conflict. It's an you know, ethno-nationalist conflict. Some ways a religious conflict. It has nothing to do with the rights of Palestinians. I mean, there's no disagreement uh, as to you know, who gets screwed over uh, as far as the Israelis are concerned. One thing I've noticed talking to some Israelis, especially those of like Iranian origin, um, especially on like the really hard right parties, these really fringe settler parties are just hard right parties is that the farther right you go on the Israeli political spectrum, the more oriental their foreign policy outlook is, namely that they're not as hostile to Iran and they're actually kind of receptive towards strengthening relations with China because China and Israel have very peculiar relations since the end of the Cold War, and there's a ton of Chinese investment there, and there have been accusations of Israeli nationals selling technology to China. Do you think that if Israeli goes through, like Israel goes through a significant demographic shift in terms of its politics, that it will take more balanced positions with regards to the Eurasian axis? That's a very good question. I don't see it at the moment. I mean, if one looks at um, you know Netanyahu and the Netanyahu government, I mean they are absolutely um, fanatically um, against uh, Iran. You know, they see Iran as an existential enemy, and so you know, I mean that, that could certainly change. But I, I haven't seen any indication that I mean that would that would be, that this would be a major change in Israeli outlook. That they would that they would abandon its hostility towards Iran. I mean, Israel kind of is essentially completely mobilized against uh, Iran. I mean, you know, it used to be, oh, the Arabs uh, want to push us into the sea, and you know, the, the hostility towards the Arab world. But that has kind of evaporated. I mean, what what you know, what Arab world? I mean, Saddam Hussein is gone. Egypt is is essentially uh, has friendly relations with Israel. Israel and Saudi Arabia have a tacit alliance. So, whom does uh, it, it, do the Israelis hate? Well, they hate the Palestinians, obviously, but the Palestinians can't really do very much. They're, they're just so, so weak and, and ineffective. They can't do much. So, all Israel can do is generate hostility against Iran. Iran is a serious power. And so, you know, the, the official the uh, line of Israel is that, you know, we're, we're still struggling. We have a, an existential enemy, and that is uh, Iran. So, you know, for that to change, I mean, you know, I think you know, Israel would then have to reinvent itself, would have to decide, you know, well, who's the enemy? I mean, we still have to have an enemy. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> how can we keep the state going without this constant threat of somebody wanting to drive us into the sea? Yes, that makes sense. And now let's bring the focus back to U.S. domestic politics, which is a, like a total mess. Yeah, I've been saying since like the beginning that uh, Donald Trump, all things being equal, will be like the prohibitive 
favorite to win the GOP nomination, but there have been a lot of wrenches thrown through like all these series of indictments and other efforts to try to like get him in jail, throw him in jail. And that might be up in the air. Who do you see as like the two main contenders for the presidency in the 2024 election once the uh, nomination process is sorted out in both parties? Well, I do think that it will be Trump versus Biden. I don't think anyone can um, challenge Trump seriously within the Republican Party. Ron DeSantis, who, who seemed to have a shot, um, has essentially you know, been all over the place on every issue. He's been all over. Oh, yeah. Awful campaign. The indictment, he's been all over the place on that. He's been all over the place on Russia and Iran. You know, so there's no clear direction coming from him. And so I think that, you know, he, he's really done. His campaign is done. You know, the only real question now with DeSantis is whether he can rescue his political career and make another challenge in 2028 because at the moment, I mean, his, his poll numbers are in the toilet. He's really, he's antagonized uh, Trump's base. So if Trump's base really comes to hate him, then there's no way in the world uh, they will ever support him. So, you know, he, you know, he, he just may be uh, toast as far as his political career is concerned. So I think it will be Trump. The question then is who his opponent will be. I think it will be Biden. I, I'm, I'm not buying into the idea that Biden will be replaced. Um, I just don't, I don't think the mechanism is there uh, to get rid of an incumbent president. He doesn't want to go. And Biden doesn't want to go. Then the question is, well, what will these... Um, prosecutors and judges do. I don't have any doubt that Trump will be uh, found guilty, certainly in the D.C. court. I mean, they absolutely hate Trump there. Maybe even in the Manhattan court. Again, Trump, you know, Trump has no support in Manhattan. So then the question is, what will the, um, the, the prosecutors and the judge decide if he's found guilty? Now, obviously, you know, he will appeal a guilty uh, verdict, but will they insist on um, imprisoning Trump, you know, pending his appeal? I mean, this judge, Tanya Chutkan, has been very uh, free and easy with imprisoning January 6th uh, defendants. And uh, she's already expressed in one of her judgments that she thought Trump should be in prison. So if he's found guilty, uh, will she then say, yeah, but you, now you have to be in prison uh, as you uh, await your appeal? I don't think that's going to uh, damage Trump's prospects of winning an election because he will still be campaigning for president from prison. I mean, he, he will come across as a martyr. So I, I, I do think that um, Trump will probably win the election as things stand now. I mean, I think the polls are showing that he's enjoying a popularity. He's uh, he's you know, he's neck and neck with Biden, according to the polls. And given that the polls always underestimate the strength of uh, Trump's support, he must be then quite substantially ahead of Biden. So it will be having, you know, uh, this remarkable phenomenon of a president in prison and winning uh, an election. It's far-fetched to, to think, but, you know, a lot of things have been far-fetched. I mean, the, the idea that the United States would risk uh, a World War III with Russia would seem far-fetched. The idea of um, prosecuting your chief political opponent would seem far-fetched. The idea of prosecuting a former president would seem far-fetched. So a lot of things 
that seemed far-fetched have now become reality. So I don't see winning an election from prison as, uh, as, as being uh, ridiculous. Yeah, we'll see how that uh, pans out. Now, I like to look at things um, in the future. I'm pretty pessimistic about the Republican Party post-Trump because there simply aren't many viable successors to carry on his uh, populist legacy. And I do believe that there is going to be somewhat of a reversion to the mean when it comes to the neocon foreign policy. You kind of already see that already with regards to the Santis. Do you think that the populist movement in the U.S. on the U.S. right will be like a fleeting development and the GOP will kind of go back to its usual programming once Trump is fully out of the picture? Well, I think that's quite likely because even the those Republicans who are you know, Trumpians, let's say Josh Hawley or Matt Gates or uh, J.D. Vance, they usually say, well, we shouldn't get involved in a, uh, a war with Russia, but we need to focus on China. So it's like, saying, okay, well, let, okay, let's skip, you know, going to, you know, war with Russia. Let's focus on going to war with China. So it's like, you know, you still have to go to war against somebody. It's just let's do, let's do China rather than Russia. There's also the problem which is that you know, they can see the consequences for a um, a president who is not willing to go along with the neocon agenda. I mean, they saw what happened to Trump in his first term, you know, two impeachments, uh, Russiagate hoax, uh, special counsel investigation. And then they see what happened after he's out of office, all these indictments. That means that the consequences of not going along with uh, you know with the the desires of the military security state, the military industrial complex, that whole block, the interagency consensus, the consequences are quite dire. I mean, even if Trump uh, becomes president, you know he, he manages to you know evade all of these um, uh, these indictments, wins wins an election, uh, pardons himself, and so on, and he's now in office. And supposing he then says, okay, I'm pulling the plug on Ukraine. This has gone on for too long. There's no interest in that. How will the um, Republican Party establishment react to him? We know the Democrats. The Democrats say, right, impeach him. You know, that's it. He's, he's damaging American national interests. He's, he's uh, pulling the plug on Ukraine. Let's impeach him. You know, I mean, they did that, you know, 2019. Of course, they're going to do it to President Trump within days, as soon as he says, I'm, I'm pulling the plug on Ukraine. What will the Republicans do? Well, I think the Republicans will join the Democrats. I think Lindsey Graham will say, yeah, yeah, we need to impeach him. So there's already, you know, so, you know, these uh, Trump's would-be successors, Josh Hawley or J.D. Vance um, or uh, Matt Gates. They, they see, you know, you don't, pull the, uh, you know, you don't go along with the, uh, the consensus, you don't tow the party line, uh, the consequences are quite dire. You know, you're going to be impeached. And then once you're impeached, they can start bringing criminal prosecutions against you. I mean, we already saw in the case of Matt Gates how easy it is to just manufacture out of nothing a criminal case. So there's a, there's a chilling effect on any Republican of what happens if uh, you don't go along with the uh, you know, with, with that uh, you know, foreign policy and national security consensus. 
Yep, indeed. I um, I think that we are going to be in for some rough times in terms of like politics and the type of changes we want to see take place in the system will not come about so easily. I think this is actually a good place to put a bookmark in this conversation. George, again, thank you for coming on to the show. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Always, um, always stimulating and very interesting. Indeed, it, it sure is. Where can my listeners stay up to date with your latest work? Thegaggle.locals.com. We have daily podcasts there um, regularly. I also have a YouTube channel. Just go just look for George Samuel on YouTube, and I post uh, very short videos. Short, but I hope pithy videos there on a regular basis. People can also visit me on my um, Substack page where I have articles, and then also people can follow me on Twitter. Awesome. And thank you all to all my listeners for taking the time out of your day to tune into El Nino Speaks. And with that, El Nino has spoken.